There's a huge amount of work that's being done now to green and make the whole industry more sustainable. And that goes not only from when the plane is flying in the air, but also how it's constructed. How are we all reducing that carbon footprint? So that part is something that a lot of our SMEs in Ontario are partnering with colleges, universities. You're listening to Making It in Ontario the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode... I chat with Moira Harvey, the Executive Director of the Ontario Aerospace Council, about Ontario's contributions to aerospace manufacturing. I've been looking forward to recording this episode for a while now because, well, airplanes are cool. They're high-tech, they're fast, they're sleek, and they're some of the safest vehicles in the world. And it turns out that Ontario does have a role to play in this global industry. According to the OAC's website, Their job is to, quote, enhance recognition of Ontario's capabilities as a leader in global aerospace markets and work together to build greater expertise to ensure continued growth and prosperity, end quote. I'm going to try to help them in their goal by telling all of you some interesting facts like Ontario manufactures between 40 and 50 percent of the world's commercial landing gear systems. I didn't know that. From my balcony in Etobicoke, I have a clear view of Pearson International Airport, and I've been watching planes take off and land ever since I moved in. It's funny to think that after all these years, 40-50% to of those touchdowns I watched were literally made in Ontario. And speaking of Pearson International, Moira and I also chatted about the new Bombardier facility that will manufacture their global 7500 business jets, and what that means for the region, for the province, and for local aerospace supply chains. And, surprise, surprise, we also chatted about finding, training, and keeping good employees. Turns out that even an industry as cool as aerospace needs to keep on top of its skills pipeline. And the OEC's answer to this challenge was something called the COAST program, which we discussed in some detail. So with that, here's Moira Harvey from the OEC chatting about planes and how we're making them in Ontario. V1, rotate, here we go. Subtle, isn't it? in progress. Hello, everyone. We're back now. We are chatting with Moira Harvey from the Ontario Aerospace Council. Hello, Moira. Hello, Nick. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Uh, why don't we start with um, Moira? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're, and, and a little bit about the OAC. So uh, I've been with the OAC for uh, close to eight years now. Time has flown. We are the Industry Trade Association for the province of Ontario. So we deal with manufacturers, uh, designers, anyone who has anything to do with aerospace. So that's the production, the design, the maintenance, repair and overhaul, uh, research and technology, all of those different components. Um, We have a number of manufacturing companies who are members We have a number of engineering companies who are members, and we also have educational members who participate in R&T projects and also um, keeping that talent pipeline full and flowing it into the industry for for future growth. Awesome. Now, what were you doing before the OAC? I remember reading somewhere that you were working for a company manufacturing landing gear. Yes, and landing gear seems to be... uh, seems to be one of Ontario's areas of strength. So uh, 
We've often been referred to, I think, as the landing gear capital of the world. We have Peru DevTech, we have Safran Landing Gear, and we have Collins Aerospace, who also makes landing gear. So it's uh, it's been uh, known that we're the uh, the landing gear capital of the world. I worked for Safran, which uh, when I first joined them, it was still uh, Messier Dowdy. Then we became Messier Bugatti Dowdy, and then it became Safran. And I spent a little over 10 years with them, I guess maybe closer to 12, which was my first foray into aerospace, actually, and uh, was uh, was an interesting transition. My background has uh, has always been marketing and communications, ended up with Messier Doughty, and um, really enjoyed the experience. It's, it's one of those, when you get into aerospace, you get hooked. Um, it's a very dynamic industry. Um, there's always things going on, always things changing, and a little bit different than some of the other areas that I'd worked in prior to my career. So aerospace is unique in that it's a very defined group of customers. You know who your end customer is, and those are ultimately the airframers, the Airbus, the Boeing, the Bombardier, the de Havilland, the Diamonds. All of those folks are, are known entities. And then certainly the tier one providers are, again, pretty known and and. Safran is a tier one provider, um, as is Collins, as is Haru, as is MHI Canada Aerospace, all of who have a base of operations here. Their work packages are fairly broad, and, and that, um, I guess, has transformed since I joined the industry way back in, I think, wow, 20, no, 2004. So it's uh, it's been an interesting transition. A lot of the the OEMs, like the Airbus and the Boeing, have chosen to work more directly with the tier ones than the smaller suppliers. So the smaller suppliers or the SMEs tend to feed into a tier one supplier or a tier two supplier who are responsible for broader work packages overall. So from one marketing communications person to another. What can you tell me about, so you came from that industry and now you, so you went specifically from under the plane to being the entire plane. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So mind you, when I go visit um, any of the sites or, uh, or any of the aircraft, I know uh, my friends at Bombardier often laugh because the one thing that I'm still interested in is what's under the plane. I always go look at the landing gear. (laughs) Yeah, I um full disclosure, I am a wide-eyed unremarkable when it comes to um all things aerospace. I I I know I know how the technology works and I'm very attracted to it, but I just I obviously I didn't spend a career studying it, so now I'm just I'm a YouTube junkie on all things aerospace. Uh, the the best thing I can say about uh, landing gear is I appreciate the physics behind what they have to do. What can you tell me about what was that transition like then? So you had, so you were focused very specifically on one aspect of aerospace. And then you, what did you learn in that transition from going under the plane to basically the entire plane? Well, I think it's, it's certainly that the whole concept of, of aerospace and aerospace manufacturing quality is, is number one. Reliability is number one. All of those things are absolutely key and critical, whether you're working on landing gear, whether you're working on wings, whether you're working on engines, avionics, it, it doesn't matter. Those standards are set. And to your point, we like to make sure that that's very safe because when we're all flying around on vacation with our families, we want to make sure that everything works and feel a comfort level in that, right? So it, it 
the players, as I said before, are, are very defined. It's not like a, a typical marketplace where if you're in automotive, as an example, you have a wide array of customers at the end of the day. Much more focused in aerospace because ultimately the airframer, which we discussed before, has the ultimate responsibility for certifying that aircraft. So everyone feeds into those, right? So it's a little bit different. However, looking at it that way, ultimately, you and I are the consumers of this product. You and I are the ones that have to shell out the, you know, 199 bucks for a flight to Florida or 2000 bucks if you want to fly first class or whatever the case may be. But ultimately, we need to keep that in mind. And that was, I think, one of the things that perhaps was a little novel in my approach when I joined Messier Doughty and that it's like, you know, it's, it's not this is where it ends. And we really have to look at as, as an aerospace supplier, how do we ultimately make that aircraft better, faster, safer, more reliable, more comfortable for the ultimate end user, who is the passenger, the flying passenger? Because in as much as you're working directly for an Airbus or a Boeing or a Bombardier or a Diamond, it's the person who actually gets in the aircraft and has that experience that is our end customer. So Moira, you said earlier on about um, the menu, the aircraft and aerospace manufacturing in Ontario. As mm-hmm. you may know, I came from the world of automotive. And when people think manufacturing in Ontario, I hate to say it, but a lot of people still say, still think automotive. But if you could, if you could broadcast to the province, if you had like 10 seconds to say to the, pro- okay, maybe not 10 seconds. I mean, let's say you had the, the ear of everyone in Ontario to discuss on um, to discuss Ontario's footprint in aerospace manufacturing. You just mentioned now about uh, landing gear. Tell us a little bit more about how much actually happens, how much manufacturing actually happens in Ontario. What, what do, what do our stakeholders need to know? Well, one of the things that I think is is probably underrated. Yes, we we often feel like the left out A because automotive gets a lot of focus, aerospace not so much for Ontario. But Ontario has capabilities from design through MRO, so maintenance, repair, and overhaul. So basically, within the province of Ontario, we have the capabilities start to finish on building and maintaining an aircraft, designing, building and maintaining an aircraft with its various components and systems that uh, that are part of the flying experience. The industry as a whole has about an annual sales or annual revenues of six billion. 80% of that is exported, roughly around 40,000 employees. And that would be pre-pandemic. We've probably dropped a little from there, but uh, we're looking to ramp back up. Immediately prior to the pandemic, one of the key things that that we were facing in aerospace, not just in Ontario, but globally, is a real concern about the talent pipeline. How do we encourage folks to go into aerospace? How do we get them to see it as the exciting, vibrant, dynamic career that it actually is? Um, I think also in Ontario, folks are not aware of the, the scope and the breadth of the industry and the opportunities that are available. It's not a case that you have to move to Seattle and work for Boeing or move to France and work for Airbus. There are probably over 300 aerospace companies that reside in the province of Ontario doing different levels of work within the work package. 
So when you start looking at that, and that's strictly from the manufacturing and, and maintenance side, if you will, that's not including all of the things like airlines and pilots and flight schools and, and that aviation side. So we really have a very vibrant industry and we really need to maybe be a little less Canadian about it and boast a little bit more about what our talents are and what we have here in the province. We also have a number of our companies, particularly in that SME grouping, who have unique talents or unique work packages that that really kind of fill in gaps for a lot of international suppliers. So there's significant interest from international clusters who would like to partner with some of these guys to develop that next piece of technology that goes on an aircraft. So there's a lot of exciting things. I think as we're seeing things change and we're looking at, you know, more sustainable aircraft, we're looking at things like, um, you know, electronic vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, all those types of activities that are really taking us to that next step. Um, I'm not sure that all of your viewers will get the reference, but, you know, we're moving into that Jetson age um, of, of aerospace. We're not there yet, but it's coming. And that provides a whole realm of new opportunities for students who are looking at that as a viable career. And it's pretty exciting when you think about it. It seems like I can't speak to any industry stakeholders without the discussion of talent and skills coming up. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the strategies, if you have any, to engage with youth uh, and to, to show them some of these amazing jobs? Absolutely. So one of the things that, that I think we've in, recognized industry-wide, not just here in Ontario, but my counterparts across the country, um, so the various regional associations and AIAC, um, who's our National Aerospace Association, we all recognize that our biggest challenge is attracting people, attracting young people into the industry. And it's something that I think we're all focused on. And as I mentioned to you earlier, it's not just within Canada. It's, it's globally, right? I think there was a point in time where aerospace was seen to be, wow, that's a cool career. And then for whatever reason, some of that wow kind of faded. It wasn't seen to be um, perhaps as dynamic and and dare I say, sexy as it once was. And therefore, you know, it's kind of maybe, maybe not. A lot of um, a lot of new careers with respect to AI came up and people probably did not recognize the amount of that that's actually in an aircraft. So one of the things that OAC is doing is we're looking at a youth outreach initiative. And um, my friends in the, the East Coast at the Atlantic Aerospace and Defense Association have a fabulous platform called a careers platform, which is really what we are going to um, copy from them and work with them to establish it for Ontario. It provides information about the types of jobs, the companies in the area, the education levels that are required, and what courses do you need to take? One of the big challenges in getting young people into this industry is if we don't hit them until the end of their high school career or when they're going into college, we're too late because they've already selected courses that have driven them in a particular direction. 
So our goal is to really access the group that's maybe grade six to eight so that they start thinking about it. They start getting excited about it. And hey, what's not to get excited about? If, if you're a kid in grade six and, and you can be told that you can be part of building a plane in your future, as you said, that's pretty exciting, right? There's a lot of people that that would resonate with. So it's really getting messaging out there. However, looking at that age group, we really are facing two awareness and education levels. One is for the kids to get them excited about it. But ultimately, we also have to convince their parents that this is a viable career choice. Because without that parental support, the kids are not going to have the opportunity to move forward there. So it, it really has to be a multi-pronged approach. And I think, you know, looking at an app is definitely the way to go. That's definitely how we're going to attract youth. We're all used to just picking up our phone and doing something really quick and, oh, look, there it is. And if it's not there, then perhaps it doesn't exist. We're not sure, right? So that's certainly part of it. But I think that the level of information that's provided through the app with respect to jobs, salary ranges, companies in the area that are hiring for this, all of those things strengthen our ability to start to fill that talent pipeline. And that's really where we would like to see that go. In addition to that, under our COAST programming, we also are um, establishing a mentor program. As you know, in our industry, or maybe you don't know in our industry, we have a lot of folks who are in that 55 plus category, which means they're eligible for retirement very soon. And with them, they will be taking a lot of knowledge earned over decades of the industry. And what we don't want to see is that disappear. So what we want to set up is a program where we have these folks who have been in the industry for decades act as mentors to those who are either interested in starting their career, are in school looking at that career, are early stages of their career working with a company, and they just kind of need someone who knows the flight path, if you will, um, to, to help guide them through some of the, the uniqueness and challenges that, that they may face with other companies. So that's another piece of the puzzle that we're putting together to hopefully strengthen youth attraction and support, particularly in the early days of a career within the industry. So Moira, with regards to the COAST program, I've, I've seen other organizations come up with these programs and I've all, I'm always very fascinated with how they kind of came to be. Where, where were you pulling information from to create this? So this is a program that answered an, a need that industry had, and that was determined based on what industry told us. So through conversations, through member surveys, identifying the areas that they felt would be the greatest impact? Where did they feel their employees could benefit from training? And then what we did was we put together an industry advisory group and a technical committee and said, okay, if this is the topic, what do you want people to have in this topic? So they identified the outcomes at the end of the course. We want people to be able to one, two, three, four, five, and listed them. And then we designed the curriculum around what the outcomes were identified by industry. So very unique in that aspect. It's not 
a pre-canned kind of program. It really is customized for industry need. And this covers, you know, a lot of different job functions or job titles across multiple companies. Because we said, okay, you know, you might be called a technician here. You might be called an assembler there. You might be called, um, you know, whatever the case may be. It wasn't relevant as to what your job title was in that organization. It was ultimately, what are your responsibilities and what will help you achieve those better? So that's really how we put that piece together. And then, um, as I mentioned, we had uh, expert facilitators and industry panels that really rounded out. It wasn't just them giving us the input and us developing the curriculum, which goes back to the, the Uh, advisory committee and the technical committee, and they go, yes, that's it, or no, we need a little more here, a little less there. But then we engaged with them to be part of the learning process and share it across um, multiple organizations. I can't believe that we actually have to work this hard to attract young people to jobs in aerospace. I like I, if I was like in grade six or seven, and someone came to me and said, hey, want to build planes? I'd be like, "Uh, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I'm doing homework now and I don't even want to do it anymore. I want to go build a plane. Like that sounds incredible. So the fact that you've got people in your industry about to retire at 55 and you're right, they've got decades of experience. And if they can pass that along that I, yes, coast program, love it. Um, but, and speaking of getting the word out, I understand that you guys had a few VIPs from the government show up uh, last week at your place. No. Nope. Not quite at our place. So this was an event at the Canadian Club. It was very exciting. Tell us about that, yeah. Because it was uh, an in-person event, which has been a long time coming. So uh, we were all very happy to see each other in person versus in a tiny little black box on the screen. And it really was um, celebrating Bombardier's big announcement and their, their big investment in the province of Ontario with their new facility that's out in Mississauga for Global 7500. So uh, it's, it's very exciting, um, and it's, it's great to see that level of investment by an airframer in the province, um, what it means for jobs and, and the future of the industry for us is, is huge. So, yeah, we were, uh, we were there and listening to uh, Eric Martel, their president and CEO, share um, insight on the facility and, and what Bombardier is doing. So it was, uh, it was great. It was really nice to see everyone. Um, there was a great energy in the room. I mean, I think it, it was kind of multiplied, if you will, in that it was an exciting announcement and it was great to hear about that investment, but it was also great to be there collectively as a group. Aerospace is, is very much um, an industry that has a basis of strong relationships. It, it's very much kind of like a, a large aerospace family, if you will, which sounds kind of corny, but you know, it's, it's one where, as you said, it's, it's really exciting. And people who have that passion about the industry, who want to be involved in the industry, connect with the others in the industry that do that. And there's lots of great discussion and, and animation. Doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, a few uh, hard landings here and there, if you will. But, uh, (laughs) but certainly, um, overall, it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's, it's really a great experience and, and people are excited and, and want it to continue. 
So I'm going to geek out a little bit here. Tell us a little bit about that investment. You said they were a framer. And earlier, you also mentioned that the framer of the aircraft, they have a very unique role. It's their job to, would you say, certify the plane? Or yeah. t- tell us a little bit about the work that's going to happen there. Because I, I, for the other nerds like me that are really interested in ha- what's happening there. <laughs> so they're actually building the global 7,500 business jet, which is the flagship of, of the Bombardier family in Mississauga. So it starts out and gets built up and becomes a green tail, as we call them in the industry. And then we'll go to a completion center in Montreal for interior and and paint and all that kind of thing. Because in a lot of cases, business jets are customized for the company or the individual who is going to ultimately purchase them. Green tail, because the, it means it's green because it's not painted and it's just the raw metal, right? I think I've seen videos like that. Yeah. 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 I'm a geek. See? See, there you go. There you go. That's amazing. And it's happening in Mississauga. It is. It is. Wow. And the facility is massive. It's it's absolutely massive. I am going to quote a number and I could be wrong, but I think it's like 770,000 square feet. It's it's absolutely massive. So it's it's certainly um, a sector of the industry. So business aircraft um, are really key and perhaps more key now than they were prior to the pandemic, right? Business aircraft are a business tool. I mean, a lot of people say, oh yeah, business aircraft, oh, that's a luxury item. It's a private thing. It's a, but not true. Um, A lot of companies use them as business tools, depending on what their business is. It, It gives you an absolute business advantage. If you are able to travel to where your customer is and you're not necessarily reliant on commercial schedules, that aircraft is there when you need it and where you need it. Um, it obviously has capabilities that it can go into smaller airports. You're not necessarily looking for a Pearson to be able to land that aircraft. You can go into smaller regional airports and be closer to your customer. So that's really critical. For our friends in the Great White North, it's, it's a critical means of getting supplies, be those food, be those medical, whatever the case may be, those aircraft are, are workhorses. They're not luxury items, if you will. So if you look at our, our, our global environment and how much smaller the world is becoming, the ability to set your own schedules and determine where you're going and when you're going there and when you need to go there is huge. Added to that, there are people who are much more comfortable now knowing that they are flying with colleagues from their company as opposed to the general flying public. So it enables businesses to respond to that need perhaps more quickly and efficiently than if they are reliant on commercial aircraft. Not to say that commercial aircraft is a bad thing or anything like that, but there's still a reluctance with with certain groups within the flying public that well, you know, the aircraft is good, but I'm not sure about going through the airport. And I don't know about that. And so if you were flying in a business aircraft, you're not um, going through massive international airports or large airports with, you know, thousands upon thousands of other people. You're going typically through a fixed base operation from a business standpoint Going through a a smaller 
fixed base operation where you can do security, you can do customs clearances, you can do all of those things within a small confined area that doesn't have thousands upon thousands of people around you. There's absolutely a comfort level and, and an additional safety factor, if you will, that, that people are choosing to take advantage of from a business aircraft standpoint. So after having heard that, and again, this is me with a novice question, and it might be a little out in the universe, but is it fair to say that, and this is you educating me on this, is it fair to say that the way aircraft are being designed now and the way that they're kind of philosophically trying to construct them, maybe there isn't as much value as one thought in moving 400 people at a time on the same schedule as perhaps there might be with now the smaller scale stuff. Cause like maybe it might be more worthwhile to send 10 people from the government in a smaller jet rather than a massive plane. Is that where the industry is going to trying to capture more of the, like the smaller craft or am I just making things up and just looking at stars? Um, no, you're not making things up and looking at stars, perhaps not as small as you're envisioning. So if you listen to, uh, to my good friend Richard Abalafia at the Teal Group or Kevin Michaels um, at Aerodynamic Advisory or Ron Epstein at uh, Bank of America, um, all of them are predicting, and, and I think we're seeing it, is as the industry comes back, we're looking at single-aisle aircraft. So definitely a smaller number of passengers on the plane than an A380, if you will. Um, there's been a lot of advances in those aircraft with respect to distances, takeoff, all those good kind of things. But it enables efficiency in the operations in that you are not trying to find a way to put 800 people on an aircraft, right? Now, having said that, the A380 um, is an amazing aircraft. It's, it's done a lot of good things. Um, certainly, some of the airlines that that have selected that have um, really kind of upscaled, if you will, to, to incredible degrees, the whole concept of first class travel. So you can look at like individual pods that you are spending your flight in, whether that's trans-Pacific, whether that's transatlantic. I mean, it, it really is, you know, and, and if you look at the airlines that have bought those aircraft, a lot of them have done that right? Whether that's Asia Pacific or Middle East, right? And that's where a lot of that went. You know, a lot of the A380s went. But if you are looking now, if you're looking at things like the 787, if you're looking at things like the A350, um, all of those types of aircraft are twin aisle, but they have more technology in them now. It's more about a passenger experience, so cabin pressures and oxygen levels and lighting and all of those things so that you arrive less jet lagged than you would flying in an older aircraft, right? So there's, there's a lot of technology that perhaps we don't necessarily talk about enough that really does enhance that passenger experience. Um, you know, seats and the comfortability with, with you know, designing seats and, and, getting less noise in the cabin, all of those things are, are R&T projects, which, you know, some of those components have already been moved into some of these newer aircraft, but that research continues. It's all about how do we make the passenger experience better? Because as we said before, ultimately, at the end of the day, 
it's you and I who are hopping on this with our family and how comfortable we are is going to determine how much are we willing to pay for that seat. So in the context of this new shifting, the plane is a customer experience and all of the opportunities to make it quieter, you know, all of that stuff. What opportunities are there for some of the, uh, for some of Ontario manufacturers and some of your members? Are there some that are like, you think maybe could contribute in a new way? Are there any that you'd like to highlight, give a shout out to? Um, a lot of our companies are involved in R&T projects right now. Um, one of the things about R&T and aerospace, the two are pretty much synonymous. There's, there's always things going on. And part of it is, is customer experience. Absolutely. And that's all about the comfort in the cabin and air quality and noise levels, all of those types of things. The other part of it is not what we see, but it's certainly becoming, I think, more visible on a global scale. And that's sustainability and green initiatives and environmental concerns, all those types of things. So there's a huge amount of work that's being done now to green and and make the whole industry more sustainable. And that goes not only from when the plane is flying in the air, but also how it's constructed. How are the manufacturing plants answering the call for this? How are we all reducing that carbon footprint from the time that it starts out on a on a Katia design through to the end of life? So that part is something that a lot of our SMEs in Ontario are partnering with colleges, universities, tier one suppliers, OEMs to, to achieve that next level. And, and when you look at the, the goals that have been set by the government of Canada and by the province for 2030 and 2050, those are absolute necessities for people to engage with now because it's not a case of someone comes up with a great idea it works and it's on the aircraft tomorrow as we mentioned before there's a whole certification process that goes into that that has to be taken into consideration even if it's a technology insertion on an existing aircraft it does require recertification by in our case transport canada for that aircraft to be granted airworthiness status, right? And that's a a safety concern that has to be met. So there's a saying that I heard in aerospace manufacturing, and I kind of want to get your opinion on it. It says, price is negotiable, quality isn't. There's much, much less margin of error, margin for error in your industry, right? Because if an engine component fails, if an engine component fails on the highway, it's a bad day, right? Mm -hmm. If an engine component fails on an aircraft, that's a very different kind of bad day, right? Absolutely. So how has aviation manufacturing and aerospace manufacturing, what's its relationship to Industry 4.0? So there's, there's certainly um, adoption of 4.0, particularly within the larger companies. So those at the, at the top end of the food chain, if you will. Um, some of our SMEs are still working to get there. But a lot of the things that, that the supply chain does, particularly in aerospace, as, as you kind of come through from the OEM to the tier one to the tier fours, all those kinds of things, a great deal of what is implemented in the various shops along the way 
is driven by the airframer. There are requirements and certifications that you must have as a manufacturer in aerospace in order to be able to be part of the supply chain. You know, it's it's not as simple as, okay, well, I'm going to go sell nuts and bolts to Boeing. You have to be an approved supplier. They come, they do audits. Any of those airframers or tier one suppliers will come and audit you. Tier two suppliers will come and audit you because ultimately they are responsible for the work package that they are delivering to the airframer that's in there for certification. So there are very high standards that have to be met all the way through the food chain. So what's next for the OAC? Well, as we mentioned, we have um, the COAST programming. The mentorship is only one component of that. COAST is a program that we're working with the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development on. We had our pilot program last year, which was um, a very successful program. So this was a, I don't want to say an e-learning opportunity because that's only one component of the COAST program. There certainly is an e-learning chapter, if you will, but it goes beyond that. We have facilitators, active learning sessions, breakout groups, industry panels, where people within the industry were able to connect and share experiences and questions. And so it kept us all connected and it was huge and it was a very successful program. And this year um, we've been able to expand the programs offered under COAST We have a training program that's all about diversity. We have a training program that's all about, we call it, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So that's another piece. 21st century management skills is another piece. Um, Teamworking. And um, we're looking forward to, to the program being very successful again this year and continuing on long beyond that because we all are faced with different ways of learning now than, than what has been the more traditional methods. It's not the, the same anymore. And, and a lot of that has come through the pandemic and it's, it's driven us to be more innovative in our approach to training. Yes, we do have an e-learning component, but that's not the only piece of these training programs. We really do um, work very hard to make sure that it goes beyond that. Moira, it sounds like your industry is in good hands. And the fact that you're arranging or, or providing services, the, the, these, these communication services, so that you're actually saying things that you want to say around the world, it, it's a very Canadian thing. It's like, okay, because so you want to you communicate with people, just understand that there are certain, you know, there's a difference between saying, I want to drive a point home versus putting the point in my car and driving it to my house. <laughs> very true. So the fact that you're offering that level of, uh, of training and that level of awareness, I think is, it's, it's great to see Moira. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, I think that the one thing is consider aerospace for all of your listeners and, and all of the folks out there. Um, aerospace is, is exciting, dynamic, has a ton of potential and As we said before, you know, we're going to go back to that scenario where we were pre-pandemic, where we were really concerned about the talent and the talent pipeline. And we're going to be back there end of 2023. So that's not too far away. We need to make sure that we have those skills. And, you know, from a, a very selfish standpoint, I'd like to make sure that we have those skills here in Ontario because we have a very vibrant industry and we want to see it grow and inspire folks to get involved with the industry and um, really 
put Ontario on the map. I mean, we're there. We're the second largest jurisdiction in Canada for aerospace. As we said before, about 40,000 people are, are working in the sector within Ontario. So it's, it's not insignificant. But what we would like to see is we would like to see that grow more because these are dynamic, highly skilled, good paying jobs. And let's be honest, we're not going to give up flying anytime soon. Moira, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Thanks, Nick. Great speaking with you and uh, look forward to seeing you in person someday soon. Very likewise. Thank you.